reading the first paragraph of the sixth chapter of Genesis. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. You are familiar with the third chapter of the Gospel of John, I trust. And you recognize it's a chapter of the Bible that's important to us as Christians for many reasons. One of which, of course, is that near its center is that great 16th verse that speaks to us of the love of God that prompted the giving of his only begotten son with the promise that everyone who embraces him by faith will not perish, but has everlasting life. And it's in this chapter that Jesus himself speaks of the necessity of an inner transformation that is so radical as to be like a new birth for all who would know and please God. But here in this chapter, we're also reminded that the sinfulness of unredeemed human nature is so complete that when it's exposed to light, it scurries back into the darkness that it prefers. This same chapter of Scripture that proclaims that those who believe in Christ are the recipients of the love of God, also declares that those who refuse God's offer of mercy are forever under his wrath. And here the Lord describes the mysterious working of his own spirit in the hearts and minds of those that God has chosen to be his own, as certainly and yet invisibly drawing them to Christ as the wind moves the limbs and the leaves of trees. The third chapter of John is about such a man, a man who was filled with and moved by the Spirit of God. His name was Nicodemus. He was one of those, like every true Christian, who felt himself strangely drawn to Christ, compelled to venture out on a busy night in his life long ago without completely knowing why, but sensing that somehow the answers to his questions would be answered by Jesus and the needs of his soul would be satisfied by Christ. In the story of Nicodemus' visit to Christ, there's an important contrast found between the last paragraph of John 2 and the story of Nicodemus' visit in chapter 3 that translators seem to fail to appreciate. The second chapter of John ends with the observation that in Jerusalem, probably in the closing days or weeks of Jesus' life, 
Many people sought him, but for the wrong reasons. And we're told that the Lord knew their hearts. He knew what was in them, and he refused to commit himself to them. Chapter 3 begins with the story of a very different kind of man. A man in whose hearts were the heart, heart was the highway to Zion, one who was sincerely hungering and thirsting after righteousness. He was a teacher in Israel who had questions that he couldn't answer. He was a leader of the Hebrews, looking for someone worthy of his allegiance. In the following chapter, in chapter 4, Jesus says that the hour is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. Nicodemus was such a man, and Nicodemus was a rarity. Unlike the masses who sought Jesus because they had eaten his bread and fish, or because he had healed their diseases, or because they believed him capable of defeating the hated Romans. Nicodemus was one of the few who came in spirit and in truth. There are other times recorded in Scripture in which God raised up men and women of unique usefulness and drew them then to himself. In the old world city of Ur, God had created a man after his own heart and then called him to a place of special blessing in the history and the geography of the ancient world. His name was Abraham. When the children of Abraham cried out under the burden of Egyptian captivity, God found a man of his own making in the pastures of Midian and summoned him to a place of singular leadership in the annals of his covenant people. His name was Moses. Among those men, first formed, then called by God, whose lives stand out against the bleak background of their times is mentioned first in the genealogy found in the fifth chapter of Genesis. His name was Noah. He appears in history at a time marked not only by rampant sin in the world, but also by the compromise of righteousness among God's own people. The result of the looming catastrophe was a decisive act of God. The most dramatic since the expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden one in which much of life on earth would be snuffed out by the flood. The account of the flood is found in Genesis chapter 6 through 8. It begins with the paragraph that I just read. Noah was a man like Nicodemus. And the language that ought to be used to point out the contrast between Nicodemus and the masses of those who sought Jesus for the wrong reasons at the very beginning of the first chapter of Genesis, or John 3, which ought to say, but there was a man, to highlight that contrast. Noah was a man who stood out by the grace of God in his time. Here in the sixth chapter, we read that God spoke to Noah. If you're familiar with the book of Genesis, you know that there are a number of other places in which we read that God actually spoke to people, not in the form of vague sensations, not in dreams or visions, but with the voice and with words that they both heard and understood. In the early, early chapters, we read that he spoke to Adam, and then he spoke to Eve, and then he spoke to their son Cain. In our text, he appears to Noah. Later in the age of the patriarchs, God spoke to Adam, 
are to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And in the time of their patriarchs, he spoke to Hagar, to Rebekah, and even to a pagan king with the title Abimelech. There's not a major section in this ancient history in which God is silent. And that makes me wonder, why doesn't God speak to me? There have been times in my life, as there have been times in yours, it would have been very useful to hear some clear word from God. Whether his voice expressed a rebuke or conveyed comfort or gave direction. But so far as my ears are concerned, there has been only silence. As we think about that, I wonder why doesn't God speak to us? It's helpful to survey the book of Genesis and to recognize that the history that it encompasses from the fall of Adam to the death of Joseph covers about 2,500 years of history. And in that time, God is said to have spoken to 10 people. This means that in the time covered by Joseph, God spoke about once every 250 years. And this means that through most of time, and in the lives of most people, God was silent. Make no mistake about it, God does speak to us. He speaks to all who will listen, but especially to those of us who have embraced his faith, his son, Jesus Christ, by faith. He speaks to us in the wonder and by the complexity of creation, which is his handiwork, He speaks to us by our consciences and by the inner working of his spirit. He speaks to us sometimes in the counsel of friends. But most particularly and most clearly, he speaks to us from the pages of his inspired word. And this is why during the time of Lent, but in all of the seasons of life, You and I as Christians are well advised to make the reading of scriptures and then the prayerful contemplation of what we have read a regular disciplined part of our Christian lives. God spoke to Noah. I'd like to look with you at a part of what God said to Noah. Many of you are familiar with deism. Deism is a religious philosophy that was actually quite popular at the time of the American Revolution. Many of the men we regard as the fathers of our country were deists rather than Christians, Thomas Jefferson being among them. Deism is not uncommon today, although even by those who are deists, they don't call themselves by that name. The deist acknowledges God as the creator of the universe but then insists for reasons of his own, God has chosen to virtually absent himself from the universe that he created. The deist is not an intellectual atheist. He does not deny the existence of God with his mind, but he is a practical atheist because to the deist, God doesn't matter. The 14th Psalm begins with the words, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It is not with his mind that he makes that declaration. It's a conclusion reached in his heart. It's a conclusion regarding the irrelevance of God. In this sense, the deist is a fool. Too many of us 
think and act like deists, whatever we might call ourselves. We give lip service to the existence of God, but we conduct ourselves as if life is ours and ours alone to manage. The fact that God spoke to Noah, or for that matter to anybody else, indicates that he has not abandoned the universe, but has made himself available to those who will seek him. And the record of the flood indicates that God is not only available, but that he takes a keen interest in the course of human life and acts at least occasionally to shape that course according to the wise counsel of his own will. You probably noticed that in the paragraph that I read to you, we seem to have there a description of a God who has changed his mind. The God who at the end of chapter 1 is described as having created all things and said it is good, five chapters later it says is sorry that he created these things. If we take this description of God literally at face value, it gives to us the impression that God is weak, that God vacillates, that God is petulant, that he has just returned from vacation somewhere and is surprised at the deplorable state to which human life has fallen. And it seems to suggest that God wasn't able to anticipate all of this when he created man and the universe in the first place. This is hardly the God revealed to us elsewhere in the Bible, the God whose eye never sleeps, the God who declares the end from the beginning. These strange man-like descriptions of God are found elsewhere in the Bible. In the third chapter of Genesis, we're told that sometime after the fall, God walked through the garden. He didn't see Adam, and he called out, Adam, where are you? In the fourth chapter, God spoke to Cain and asked him, where is your brother? Does anyone believe for a moment that God didn't know where Adam was hiding in the bushes because of his sin? Or that God didn't know where Cain had hidden the bloodied body of his brother Abel? These questions don't reveal divine ignorance, although a literal reading of them would suggest that. They are simply examples of a figure of speech used in the Bible called anthropomorphism. This is an assignment to God of man-like qualities and traits, presumably to help us better understand his nature and his acts. In other places, the Bible speaks of the eye of God, as if he has but one, and the ear of God, as if he has but one, and the arm of God, as if he has but one where, in fact, we know that God does not have any eyes or ears or arms. But these are simply ways of describing God in ways that might help us better understand him. These all, including the apparent reference to God's changing his mind in chapter 6, are figures of speech, all used to help us understand God. In this paragraph, we discover that there were three problems on earth that in this anthropomorphic sense, troubled God. One was the general increase in godlessness among people. 
The second was the emergence of particularly powerful and influential men who practiced and advocated godlessness. These are the giants, the mighty men referred to in this paragraph. But the third was the fact that the godlessness of the world was seeping like a poisonous gas under the doors and around the windows of what we can legitimately call the church at that time and was infecting the covenant people of God. It was not the first. It was not the second. But it was the third of these problems that triggered the wrath of God and resulted in the flood. Next week, we're going to take a look at how the flood and the ark prefigure the church. But for now, let's be reminded by the fact that the godlessness of the world was beginning to poison the hearts and the minds of God's covenant people to be warned of the necessity to guard ourselves and to guard the church we love against the influence of the world that often seems to us beautiful and attractive and is sometimes so subtle that Christians and churches come close to death even before they realize that they've been infected by that poison. There are words in this paragraph that pique the interest of every student of Scripture. In verse 3, God says of man, his days shall be 120 years. And we have to wonder what that means. There are two possibilities. Either this is a divinely appointed cap on human longevity, or it's a reference that to that period of time that Noah had to finish the ark, that God spoke those words, and in 120 years it would start to rain. For most of my life as a student of Scripture, I have preferred, I have preferred this latter view, but there's a problem with it that I just became aware of. If that were the case, if this 120 years refers to the period between God's giving Noah the prophecy about the flood and instructions for the ark and the actual beginning of the flood, then these words would have been spoken when Noah was 480 years old because he was 600 years old when the flood began. But the prophecy and the instructions given to Noah also include these words in the 18th verse, you shall go into the ark, you your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Remember that if the 120 years refers to the time between this prophecy and the beginning of the flood, Noah was 480 years old when he heard them. But the genealogy that fills most of the preceding chapter says this, and Noah was 500 years old and begot Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This means either that Noah, at the age of 500, gave birth to triplets, or that he was 500 when the last of his sons was born, or he was 500 when the first of his sons were born. In any case, at the age of 480, not all of his sons were yet born, and certainly they were not all married, and yet the prophecy refers to his sons and to his sons' wives. This is probably fatal to the view that the 120 years refers to the time that Noah had to build the ark. It now seems most likely to me that this is a limit 
or the approximation of a limit placed by God on the duration of human life. And if that's the case, it's fascinating to read through the rest of the book of Genesis and notice the decline in the lengths of lives that are recorded. Noah lived a total of 950 years, but his son Shem only 600. Abraham lived for 175 years, His grandson Jacob died at 147, and Jacob's son Joseph, whose story ends the book of Genesis, lived only 110 years. We read on through the rest of the Old Testament, and there's only one other life recorded in that whole period that exceeded that 120 years, and that was of Aaron, who lived 123 years. In that regard, it's also interesting to notice that in the age in which we live, one in which our understanding of human health and nutrition has increased exponentially over that of previous generations, and in a time in which the drugs and machines and techniques we use to treat disease and prolong life has expanded at a startling rate, we still don't hear of people living beyond this cap, apparently set by God before the flood. There's a lot more to consider in this paragraph and in these chapters about the flood, and we'll be looking at those in the next two or three Sundays. But for now, let me say this. It's clear from the scriptures that the flood was an act of judgment on the part of the God that you and I have gathered to worship. Like several of the visions recorded in the book of Revelation, it was an outpouring of the wrath of God. It's obvious in the flood that thousands of people died, old men and newborn babies, young people in the prime of life, skilled musicians and artisans, farmers, traders, housewives. And when the waters finally dried, only eight people were still alive. Across the face of this community and around the world, people who call themselves Christians have stepped through the doors of churches they call Christian to worship gods that are so different from one another as to make it impossible to believe that they are all the same God. You and I have come together this morning to worship a God we believe to be loving and merciful but whom we also know to be just and holy. He is a God who loves his own. He is a God who offers mercy to all, but he is also a God who holds those who refuse his offer of mercy forever under his wrath. He is the Lord of the living and of the dead. He is the God of salvation. He is the God of judgment. He is the God of heaven. He is the God of hell. He is a God to be praised and adored. He is a God to be honored and to be feared. But in other places, people come together in the name of a God whose list of attributes has been cut in half. Theirs is a God of love only, a God of mercy only, a God of understanding and kindness and forgiveness only. Theirs is a God who wants only the best for all people and who literally wouldn't hurt a fly. This God has become the most popular God 
in America today. And his followers read the story of the flood and challenge us with the question, how can a loving God condemn anybody? To them, stories in the Bible like that of the flood can only be explained in one way, and that's by claiming, as they do, that the God of the Old Testament, this petulant, narrow, angry, grudge-bearing God, has really been replaced by Jesus, by another God of a different sort. How can a loving God condemn anyone, they ask? We respond, how can a holy and just God save anybody? To us, the mystery of the flood is not that thousands perished, the mystery of the flood that any were delivered. We who have seen our reflection in the mirror of scriptures and have been prompted by the Holy Spirit to remember that vision, understand that the most righteous among us is unworthy of the least of the mercies of God. In our worship, we often sing words like these, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? He died for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? We sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We sing, alas, and did my Savior bleed, and would my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Let's leave this place this morning thinking about the flood and its hero and its time, grieving that the sin that made the flood and the cross necessary lives in us. Let's leave this place rejoicing that God has bathed us in his mercy, filled us by his spirit, and made us his own forever. Let's leave this place knowing that the world through which we make our way is no more friendly to our God or to righteousness than the world that was condemned by the flood. And may the divine record of life in our time, one that makes mention of the masses who ignore Jesus, And those who seek him for the wrong reason begin as the story of Nicodemus begins. But there was a man. But there was a woman. But there was a young person. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that you would remind us as you reminded Noah by your spirit and by your word, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. Protect us, our God, from becoming too much at home in the world, too friendly with the world. Remind us that you have called us to glow as lights in the darkness that surrounds us. For your sake, for your glory, for our peace, and for our joy, we pray that you would make us as faithful as you have made others. In Jesus' name, amen.